Welcome to another episode of the podcast on becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and today my guest is J. Aaron Simmons, who is professor of philosophy and has published a number of books in philosophy, but he is probably better known for his podcast, Philosophy Where We Find Ourselves, and his forthcoming book, Camping with Kierkegaard. So Yeah, it, it is so good to be with you. Thank you, uh, Bruce, for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you, Aaron. It's been too long since we've talked, so it's great to catch up. Well, so, I, I always think that uh, as much fun as podcasts are to do, uh, it is even more fun when you get to hang out with a friend doing them. So, honored to be here. Yeah, that's exactly my my take on this. So, we talked about various things we could talk about today. Right. And um, I think what we want to start with is sort of your discomfort with theism when you were in your 20s and your comfort with church. Yeah. And now you find that this balance has kind of changed. Would you like to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, it it's something that actually occurred to me fairly recently. I had a student talking to me and she was asking me, you know, about questions she was wrestling with and talking about how hard, you know, certain things were. And she just wasn't sure what she believed in this and that and had grown up in the church and, you know, identified as Christian. And in talking to her, you know, sometimes you'll you'll be saying things out loud. And I, I feel this way when I'm speaking and also when I'm writing, you sort of write and you're like, oh, shoot, I do think that, don't I? You know, because you're almost reading what you've said. And in talking to her, I made the claim in my 20s, the questions I had about Christianity, about religion were really at the register of belief. They were, what do I hold to be true? And then now in my 40s, I'm 45 currently, my questions are different. It, it's not so much that I don't know what I hold to be true or that I'm actively wrestling with what I hold to be true. It's that I'm pretty sure where I stand on stuff. Now, I recognize I could be wrong. There's always other options. It's always, of course, you know, moving and shifting. But it's less, a, we might say, an epistemic issue about belief and more a practice issue about how church works for me. So in my 20s, going to church was easy. I just wrestled some with, you know, what do I believe? Do I actually think what the pastor says is true? Is this, in fact, right? What about the problem of evil? Mm -hmm. And this makes sense because mm -hmm. I was just getting into philosophy. I then started graduate school. So I was playing drums professionally at churches, doing all kinds of gigs, doing Christian ministry mm -hmm. and music. And that was easy for me. It was then I would, you know, go home and, and read Nietzsche or Kierkegaard or Freud or whoever and wrestle with these ideas. Well, how can a good God be all powerful and yet there be suffering? Well, what do I make of this and this? Now, uh, you know, I've spent 20 years wrestling with those questions. And it's not that they're not questions. It's just they don't keep me up at night anymore. Right? I, I kind of feel like I, I stand where I stand and I've got reasons for it. And you know what? I hope that my views are correct. But now church has become way harder. And it's harder because the community in which I find myself participating as church is more and more 
um, exclusively defined by an almost political orientation or social mm -hmm. allegiance that does not accord with where I find myself socially and politically. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to kind of cut to the chase on this, I, I am still a Pentecostal Christian, but I'm also a um, very left-leaning, progressive postmodernist. <laughs> and it's that weird intersection that makes the participatory actions of being around a community that assumes Christian theism plays out as a very conservative manifestation of social life. That's where my tension now lies. Um, and so I, I, it might be a shift in my epistemology, um, but the way I think I would describe it is it's a shift in um, where the rough ground is. Wittgenstein, the philosopher, talked about, you know, getting back to the rough ground where our language mm -hmm. and our practices really kind of, you know, rub against each other. And when I was, you know, 20, 21, 22, the rough ground was the things that I thought I held to be true, but there were all these good objections. Now, uh, it's, it's well, I, I stand where I stand on purpose and I understand the difficulties and this and that, but the rough ground is how do I identify with a community with whom I disagree more often than not about how to live? And that's the tension that I find myself trying to navigate on the other side of COVID, on the other side of, you know, the Trumpist takeover of white evangelicalism in America, um, the kind of increasing fundamentalism that tends to inhabit a lot of evangelical spaces. So now I identify as Pentecostal. I don't identify as evangelical anymore because of these mm -hmm. social shifts. Um, but it's something that I'm actively thinking through and living through and um, you know, trying to figure out, well, how do, do, do I still raise my son in church? Well, I think I do. Right. So I, I actually don't wrestle as much with like taking him to youth group. Um, cause I want him to have these experiences and it be part of his embodied history and understand what was true in the piety of his mother and I, and our grandparents and on and on. But there's a lot of, you might say, uh, conversations on the backside, you know, the, the, the ride home from youth group. Hey, what y'all talk about? You know, not deprogramming, but making sure he sees questions where they might have put periods, <laughs> right? And and allowing him maybe to live in that uh, that play that, that mm -hmm. uh, things are not as obvious as we might think. And that's not a challenge to our faith, though it might be a wrinkle in how we are part of this community. So I don't know if that, lays it out well enough for the listener, but that's kind of how I'm experiencing it. That makes perfect sense to me. And do you see any kind of resolution to this, or do you just see this as kind of like where you're going to be for at least the conceivable future? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, the way it's playing out for me is I used to, you know, I, I was a professional drummer, um, I'm still okay at it. Uh, and so before COVID was, you know, playing uh, drums a lot was my wife is a singer. She was on stage singing, doing the worship music and stuff. And uh, about a year ago, when of course, things had kind of returned to quasi normal, people were back in church in person, masks were coming off, all, you know, vaccines were widely available. 
And my pastor reached out to me, who is a good friend of mine. He's a little bit younger than me, which also creates an interesting dynamic about how we think about these things. Um, and, and I highly respect him. So I should say that my concerns with church have nothing to do with my particular church, right? It's this kind of broader question of what is this they? <laughs> who is this we, <laughs> right? Um, my specific local church, love the pastor. He's unbelievably welcoming, has found tons of ways for me to get involved as a progressive postmodern Pentecostal. Um, so I feel very warmly welcomed and encouraged where I find myself. But I told him, I was like, man, I, I think I'm going to not come back and play drums for a while. And he's like, well, why not? Um, and I said, he, he's like, are you not background people? It's like, no, that's not it. Uh, it it's at least for a while. I don't know how long a while. Uh, and this will sound so arrogant, but maybe I can explain it to uh, moderate the, the arrogance. I said, I've decided that for foreseeable future, I don't want to be on stage in churches without having the microphone. And what I mean by that, because again, it sounds really cocky, like only me and the microphone. But what I mean is, if I can be sure that the content that my embodied presence is tacitly approving mm -hmm. is content that I see doing the work not of deconstructing the faith of these people, but interrupting the hegemony and the obviousness of this faith being confused with a particular political orientation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then I'm fine because I still identify in this space. I'm still part of this we. I still affirm the way of Christ as the way of the life I'm trying to lead. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be on stage playing drums uh, and the theology of a particular song, say, um, be presented and misunderstood as affirming a kind of radical individualism that sadly for too many audiences today gets picked up as, you know, somehow supporting Second Amendment rights and let's all go tote guns. It's like, yeah, you know what? I can't I can't say yes to this, even if it's just me laying down a four on the floor with a strong backbeat. I, I need to just be really careful about my embodied tacit affirmation. And his response was, man, that makes tons of sense. You know, we'd love to have you back on stage anytime you want to do it. Let me know. Of course, you're back on. Uh, but I get it and take as much time as you need. And so that's, I think, where I'm at is not this is a permanent thing. Uh, it's a I I don't know what the future holds. Again, I, I'm in America, United States, and I don't know what the future holds for the um, broadly and I, the words fail. You know, um, maybe traditionally evangelical spaces, right? So again, I don't want to say evangelical; I don't identify that way. But these are spaces that have traditionally been understood as that. I don't know where they're going, and. Uh, I, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. I'm not sure if United States is, is heading for further division, increasingly violent division, or is it headed for the awareness where we all kind of realize, man, we, we can disagree about important stuff, but those disagreements need not play out as assumptions about the eternal salvation of the other or the personhood or dignity or rights of the other. And that's an open question, right? And so as a result, 
we still go to church. We're still there on Sundays. I sit in the balcony now. Um, my son is still going to youth group and enjoys it. I'm trying to get him more involved in playing drums and being part of the music team because I think this is an important area of his own development and his own socialization and his own growth. Um, and one might say, well, why not just go to a more progressive congregation? Why not just go be a Methodist or an Episcopal or whatever? And the answer is because I'm a Pentecostal, right? Like this is where my my lived praxis is running up against my lived practice. <laughs> like my, my pneumatological imagination, quoting Amos Young, my, like the way that I see the world and understand God is spirited. It is embodied. It is effective. It is something that Pentecostalism as a tradition gets right, I think. The problem is it gets it right at the cost of getting, I think, an awful lot wrong when it comes to then how we live with others. And that tension is a tension um, that I'm unwilling to sacrifice the one side to fix the other side, right? I can go hang out with a bunch of liberal Christians. The problem is I would not be raising my son in the context of the affective embodied spiritual reality that defines four generations of his uh, predecessors, right? And that matters to me. I want that to be true for him. Um, and, you know, depending on where you want to go with this, I would even say uh, Pentecostalism for me is more phenomenologically um, adequate to the way I understand the truths of theology to play out. And so... I, I, for better or worse, this is where I'm at. <laughs> I am Pentecostal. And for better or worse, that means that church then is hard precisely because of the beliefs that I am less troubled by uh, the way I was early in, earlier in my life. One of the questions that I have, not necessarily for you, um, would be something like this. How is it that evangelicalism which is supposed to be about the gospel, which is supposed to have something to do with this guy named Jesus, mm -hmm. how is it that it's become so closed to the other? Let me give you just a little bit of background here. When I was coming of age, so to speak, and going into a career in philosophy, I had the sense, and I think this sense was a correct sense, that the evangelical world was opening up uh, example that I've often given is that uh, when I was teaching, and this will tell the audience that I'm a little older than you, um, when I was teaching at Wheaton early on in 87-88, in the fall of 1987, the new bishop of the Episcopal Church of Chicago, the, the Chicago, no, Chicago Diocese, came to speak in chapel. That is utterly unthinkable today. Yeah. And in fact, even, even probably a decade later, it was already unthinkable. It's certainly unthinkable now. Yeah. And so um, from my perspective, what's, what's happened is there's been a kind of circling of the wagons. Um, those people who are viewed as maybe internal threats have been removed in different kinds of ways. And so my worry is that with this circling of the wagons, with, with this idea of like we have to stay together mm -hmm. and we have to 
keep ourselves unstained by the other, how is that going to play out in terms of the gospel when Jesus is constantly reaching out to the other, the yep. person who doesn't seem to fit, who is n not considered part of the group? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it's perplexing internal to the self-identifying claims of the you know, again, traditionally evangelical community, right? The 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 way they narrate themselves seems to a lot of us as at odds with then how they uh, participate in social life. And I think that you know what you're pointing to back when when you were you know teaching and um, evangelicalism seemed to be kind of opening up. I mean, I, I grew up in that space. So again, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. And my coming of age was in a, you know, pretty multicultural, uh, large, I wouldn't say mega, but large church in Tampa, Florida. And so I, I never remember my childhood and teenage years before I went to college, I don't ever remember that being defined by anything other than a kind of lived hospitality to the other, right? It, it And again, you know, when you're in major metropolitan areas, you've got lots of diversity in the community and the church. Uh, and of course, not as, maybe as much as one would have liked, but it was still in comparison, a pretty diverse, interesting, compelling space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one that was also, I think, defined by um, a healthy sense that being invitational is part of what allows a church to flourish in the broader community. And right. so, you know, that model of church growth, that model, again, I'm thinking here kind of the, you know, the 90s, um, late 80s and 90s was something that it makes sense that you would have seen people like Ron Sider and Jim Wallace and others kind of beginning mm -hmm. to emerge coordinate with that, right? You'd had the, you know, Jesus movement 20 years before this, that had sort of um, really ruptured and wrecked any kind of narrowness and closed-mindedness within these communities, you know, coming out of the kind of neo-evangelicalism that was already a sort of invitational space compared to the former fundamentalists. Uh, so right. from, I would say, the early 50s through maybe the early 2000s, I think there was a general trajectory where opening, hospitality, inviting was at least plausibly seen in some aspects and some corners and some churches within this broader tradition. The problem is... As with, I think, any social movement, right? Um, well, this is even a physics principle, not just social principle. With any reaction, there's a equal and opposite, and in this case, maybe uh, outsized reaction. And so alongside this kind of generally opening and more inclusive, more hospitable model of an evangelical space, you also had the rise of the moral majority, the rise of the religious right, the rise of... Um, outsized influential preachers now standing as political figures, right? You know, the Dobsons and Falwells and others, Robertsons and stuff. And, and 
these were running parallel, right? So that same track of that kind of late 60s to early 70s, well, very quickly you then had in the mid to late 70s, this rise saying, whoa, we've got to put a stomp to this. Jimmy Carter, though Baptist, he doesn't represent our values because he's supporting the Equal Rights Amendment. And he's, you know, doing things we don't like. We need to be traditionalists in a particular way. And so I think that where we find ourselves now is, you might say, like the ratcheting up of what was an interesting, though complicated and maybe nuanced conversation for about 30 years. And I think, and again, I, I'm, I'm not a political scientist, and so others could come on and speak to this much more carefully than I can. But my experience and the little bit of study I've done in this particular sense, I actually think that what we started seeing was a uh, doubling down on the narrative of the moral decay right? The country's going to hell, literally, right? How how do we stop this? So you, you know, got very good at uh, rhetorical gestures and uh, verbal maneuvers that then sketched someone as the reason that things were problematic. And so you needed restoration of family values. You needed a restoration of trad traditional roles. You needed, you know, the promise keepers movement, the head of the household model back in place. <laughs> and maybe there's even some aspect. I know uh, Kristen Kobe's Demez talks a little bit about this, that there were some aspects that were even positive in some of this early movement. But then it also gave rise to backlashes at the same time. And we see, I think, these backlashes occurring, again, in political spaces that play out as theological assumptions. You know, George W. Bush gets elected, and of course, it's the rise of the evangelical. Finally, we've gotten the power. Here we are. Um, you know, and in many ways, I, I certainly was not a fan of, of W., but you know, I actually think there's a reasonable, even if I would disagree, there's a reasonable view that compassionate conservatism represented. And right. I think it's the kind of view that allowed for nuance and allowed for invitation and then conversations about, but how do we still maintain what we are committed to as a moral community? Right. How do we welcome, but then say, but there's still a we here. I think those are important questions. All of that, um, I think, really kind of is, is, if not very muted, <laughs> it's erased where we now find ourselves. And again, I don't want to say, oh, it's causal for Trump, because obviously the fact that Trump got elected was caused by something else, some genuine feeling of um loss say um it might be just straight racism again there's lots of levels that which we could unpack this but what i see different now from the churches of my youth is it, it's not that i mean back then it was like there was at at there was still a conservative set of assumptions right of course but there was a um tacit attempt at least to then say, hey, but come on in, we'll we'll talk about, it. we'll figure this out. Now there's almost a, um, you know, sign at the door, as it were, 
this is who we are. And if you don't like it, not only are you going to hell, but you're also an enemy of our country. You're also anti-American. You're also morally flawed. And that's the spot that I really wrestle with. And so for me, where this really mm -hmm. came to a head was during COVID, um, because I I watched what I describe often as, you know, the hanging curveball over the moral plate. <laughs> like, how, how could we possibly strike out when all we were asked to do was not kill each other by being egoists? A lower bar you could not set for moral life. And yet, wow, we just kept striking out. Again, we traditional evangelical communities. And we did it by narrating things like religious freedom as under attack. We narrated as, uh, you know, hoaxes and conspiracy theories that were actually preventing us from being, uh, you know, of service to our God. And watching all this, I, I just kept thinking, wow, uh, you know, those passages in the Minor Prophets, especially in Amos, you know, where we're, we see the prophets you know, step up and say, thus saith the Lord, I'm kind of sick of your religious, you know, meanderings and your festivals and the worship songs that do nothing to care about others. Mm -hmm. What do I want? Asks God. I want justice. <laughs> like... We could love each other. Stop being this way. And of course, at one level, we could even say, though Christian ethics is complicated into a whole academic field, at the end of the day, all vice in the Christian tradition reduces to a kind of egoism. I mean, that's the great vice, according to Christianity, is egoism. And what is it we saw? We saw, you know, pastors flaunting this egoistic sense of dang it it's my right it's my ability i've got to you can't tell me what to do and all that we were saying was hey how about you not do as stupid a thing as risking the lives of other people especially the most vulnerable people the immunocompromised the elderly the weak the poor and what did Traditionally evangelical say, again, not all, there's plenty of exceptions, but it, it's again, this kind of general movement that worries me, <laughs> you know, basically they said, nah, we're good. Let them die. And, and I don't think that like lots of individuals were saying this, <laughs> right. But as this kind of anonymous mass movement, it's hard not to hear that as what was said. And, you know, for me, I just think, man, I, I don't know what it looks like to continue being part of a we mm -hmm. that isn't interested in always, at every minute, in every way, trying to leave the 99 to find the one. The, I mean, at one level, you could say the model of Christ was a radical um, refusal of strong fences around the we and instead a persistent commitment to finding them whoever they might be the tax collectors the prostitutes the you know it 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 doesn't matter who the they are jesus consistently says hey i'm, I'm gonna go over and talk to them now is there still transformation heck yeah right so i'm not suggesting the sort of 
hey, everybody, come on in, and there's not any here here, right? <laughs> I'm worried about certain threads in postmodern Christian theology that maybe evacuate so much that inclusion comes at the cost of being included in nothing, right? You know, it's, it's like uh, having a concert, wide open, free tickets, everybody can get in. The problem is everybody can get in, um, and now no one can hear the stage because the crowd's so big. Right. Well, the thing you've gotten into is not actually a thing anybody wants to be part of at that point. So I do think that there are important questions about what does it mean, not in a gatekeeping or rigid boundary way, but in a what does it mean to say I'm doing the best I can to live into Christianity, to become a Christian, as Kierkegaard suggests, as opposed to something else. And that should make a difference. <laughs> and right now. Uh, I think the difference it makes might actually be pretty scary. Um, I remember actually a story when I was a kid, I had a pastor say, and probably meant something very different by this, but, but it always stuck with me. Pastor said, if if you're driving around late at night and you uh, pull into a parking lot and there's a bunch of people, you know, walking out of the, the building, um, they're all, you know, coming out walking towards you, except will it change your worry, your fear, if you know that in fact they're all Christians just coming out of a prayer meeting? And of course, what he meant was this should be a space where you know that you are welcome, you are safe, you can get help, you can find resources, you can find the water for your thirsty soul, right? And and I love that idea, right? It, it, you know, by your fruits, you shall know them. Like it should matter. You say, yeah, this is a group of Christians. Like that means that they're the people who have got my back in some sense. Not exclusively, because again, I, I think that there's nothing unique about that welcome. I think, you know, Jews and Muslims and Baha'i and Hindus, they, all, all across the board, right? Even, you know, atheist communities, like there shouldn't be anything necessarily different about Christianity mm -hmm. in that sense. But right now I think, well, wait a minute. Uh, if if you see a bunch of people coming out of a building and you hear that they're Christians, well, it's probably the case that they are almost entirely going to be white if it's a traditional evangelical, traditionally white congregation. Now, if, again, if it's a Church of God in Christ or other types of, you know, it might be predominantly people of color because we still are so segregated, <laughs> right? But if you're a person of color running into that space, like, we just saw, you know, this week, three different people get shot because they were assumed to be threats. Well, in the culture of evangelicalism connected up with a Second Amendment gun culture, which is kind of hitting fervor pitch uh, currently in the United States, is it still true <laughs> that you would feel safer and welcomed and can find solace in these people? Or do you now see them as actually the risk to your embodied security? You know, what What if you're gay? Seeing the Christians walk out of the, like, is that then a thing you say, hey, they, they've, I'm safe here? Or is it a place where you actually walk into judgment and condemnation and exclusion, right? They, those dynamics, what if you're poor? Is this a place that actually will support and encourage and find ways for you to get, uh, you know, what you need? Or is this a place that continues to, en masse, 
vote to prohibit minimum wage increases and child protection laws and the realities connected to universal health care. Like, at what point do we stop seeing, oh, but they're Christians as some sort of good and maybe start realizing in a lot of social ways, this might be the worst place <laughs> that, that I could drive up if I'm in need. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And and again, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, of course, you know, right? There, there's, you know, gang spaces and, and you know, crack houses. So so again, like I'm, I'm speaking here in these general terms relative to philosophical questions, but they're questions that trouble me enough to make going to church prick my conscience about what is it that people will think of me by this practice. Will they think of me, there's a person who's committed to walking humbly before God and doing justice to his neighbor? Or will they think, oh, you go to that church? Well, then you're anti-gay, you know, complementarian, you know, basically just means pro-patriarchy. You're this, this, this. And and that concerns me, right? Because I think, especially as a public intellectual, it matters what we let be said of ourselves in public. And we don't get to control that narrative entirely and so when it comes to going to church, uh, I'd, I'd rather talk to people about who we think God is than people assume they know what I think because I go to that church, right? And that's the tension that, that I'm continuing to, to wrestle with. And that is a really difficult tension to wrestle with. One of the difficulties with religious epistemology is that we can't think of it just simply in terms of, you know, this is what I'm thinking in terms of how I read the text, because the difficulty here is, first of all, most people can't read the Bible in Hebrew or Greek. And unfortunately, when you can do one of those or both of them, you you come to realize that what's written there in the Greek or Hebrew text is actually somewhat different from what gets translated. You can see this in in various translations. You know, one of the classic cases would be the NIV. There's this thing, I think it's in Leviticus, where it says, you know, if someone strikes a woman so that she has a miscarriage, um, the text actually says something like, she should, that, that per, sorry, the text says something like, he should pay a fine. The NIV says he should be killed. So, in other words, in other words, basically, they just they didn't actually just translate it. They they basically said this is this is our opinion regarding this, and this is I think one of the difficulties is how is the average person supposed to make sense of these texts, which are from ages past. And require, I mean, if you think about it, the kinds of things that, for instance, let's make it a little bit more recent, Jesus. So not quite as far back as the Old Testament. The kinds of things that Jesus says are such that the original hearers would have had a context for understanding, you know, what what he was saying. One of the examples that I like to use is that, you know, Jesus talks about Gehenna, I think a total of 10 times. Gehenna is literally, quite literally, the name of the dump outside of Jerusalem. 
And it is, of course, a place of fire because, well, that's kind of what happens at dumps. And um, so it's really difficult to know. I'm not saying that, that there is no reason for Christians to hold a doctrine of hell, but it's really difficult to know what in the world Jesus is talking about here. It sounds like he's talking about the dump. Um, and of course, if it's the dump, you could get yourself out of the dump. In other words, the, the, the dump isn't going to be a source of everlasting punishment because you could just decide, hey, I don't want to be in the dump anymore. I want to go back to town. And so the difficulty is how, how does the average person know what to do with these kinds of, kinds of things? Uh, we philosophers have ways of, you know, dealing with these uh, things, though one of the difficulties I've found is that many philosophers are biblically illiterate. That's maybe a bit too strong. <laughs> but often their reading of the Bible is very superficial and not very deep. Uh, and, and this is the kind of thing that I, I've come to see uh, I won't say exactly how and, and in what way, but, but in working with philosophers who are not stupid, um, watching them read texts from the Bible in ways that are just remarkably simplistic, one is sort of astounded by this. I, I don't know if you have anything to re respond to that. Uh, I, I, I think, um, for me at least, the questions that would be interesting for you and I to think about together. It's kind of like maybe pivot now from me talking mm -hmm. to us thinking out loud together is, so So, what is it that our experiences as professional philosophers contributes to this situation, <laughs> right? Because a lot of what I've been saying is sort of speculative with some sociology and a little bit of political theory and causation relative to religious stuff. So it might be kind of fun to think about, like, now, what if we push this into questions of religious epistemology, right? And in some sense, move away from the, like, you know, social critique, which we've talked about in the ethical dimension, and maybe slide it to, you know, what, did, you know, so maybe I come back to, so what does it mean then for me and for you to, you know, to, to have different kinds of questions at different points in our life. Does that mean that we solved the original questions? Do those still remain? What does it mean to say I still could be wrong, but I'm not really wrestling with that? I think that kind of religious epistemic question might be interesting for the two of us to right. kind of, you know, banter back and forth as philosophers about. Yeah, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, so I grew up in the evangelical world. Um, very much a part of that. My, my father was, you know, an important figure in, in that world. And I wanted very much to stay a part of that world. I, I think actually I bent over backwards to try and be a part of that world. And eventually I was in effect told that I wasn't part of that world. Um, which is odd because, you know, the some of the people who were telling me I wasn't part of that world were, were from my per perspective, relative newcomers to that world. So who are they to be telling me that I'm not part of that world? Uh, but, but, but that is, I think, a problem. If, if basically mm -hmm. you are dismissed, you are basically told, you know, you're other, and we don't want to listen to you, 
then in fact, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. Yeah. No, I, I think this is important. I mean, so, you know, we, we were talking about this shift in traditional evangelicalism from what seemed like an opening, seemed like a more hospitable approach to a, what I perceive as more narrow, more exclusive, more exclusionary. And a way of framing this is um, a, a, as a, as a, awareness of the hermeneutic task of reading, right? And so what you're hitting on with the complexities of religious epistemology, especially as concerns the task of receiving truth that is ostensibly revealed, uh, distinctive in, um, you know, even if not unique, it's distinctive, right? And and some may say unique within human history. Um, this word of God, well, but the word of God is of course in a natural language, right? It's it's in Hebrew and Greek and you know Aramaic, and then now when we receive it, often in uh, you know Latin or in English or in French or German, like. What it is we do when we talk about the Word of God is often act like there's no hermeneutic filters between us and the text. But part of what's so cool, I think, about the sort of philosophy that you and I do, um, you know, broadly construed postmodern or deconstructive uh, phenomenological philosophy, is that it recognizes that reading is not just a task of interpreting books, but it actually implicates us in what we were talking about, the, the task of relating to others. <laughs> because reading becomes an act of moral engagement with some, um, some interpretive possibility that might be a page of a book. It might be a passage from the Bible. It also might be, how do I understand, um, you know, what I see in front of me? You know, if I, I see a plume of smoke in front of me driving down the road, well, maybe I should push the brakes a little bit, right? I'm interpreting this text. If I see a tornado in my rearview mirror, I'm going to need to probably drive a little faster. Like all the things that we do that allow us to navigate the world are hermeneutically mm -hmm. or interpretively laden. And yet, um, for some reason, we think that the Bible in particular can be taken up as naively presented without any need of that work. Right? But then we can realize, but there's linguistic issues, as, as you point out, right? I'm one of those who does not have Hebrew and Greek at the level where I wish it were to read these texts in the original. I can't even do it, right? And not just linguistic, it's also uh, social, right? What reading community have we been raised in such that our assumptions and expectations have already been shaped relative to a passage? And... You know, it really makes a difference if you were raised in conservative Catholic church or you were raised in a liberal Episcopal church or you were raised in a PCA or PCUSA. I mean, these different communities, these different denominations 
we as philosophers can say, well, they are different interpretive and discursive practices that shape who they are. And so one of the things that I find especially troubling about um, the, the traditional evangelical closure to what we saw as this maybe promising moment of hospitality that emerged, you know, 20 years ago, I think that with that closure has come now a doubling down on the interpretive clarity with which their readings then are just the case. And so we've got a, a leveling um, mm-hmm. of two very different issues, right? One is moral, one is uh, textual, say, that actually become like built on top of each other. I'm not sure which one, you know, is the foundation and which one is the the secondary, but how we read, how we make sense of, how we understand shapes how we then live, how we engage, how we speak and how we act. And vice versa. How I have been trained to speak affects how then I read and what I read and why I read. I mean, think about it like in the terms of accents. I have a student uh, from Africa, and he was giving a presentation yesterday. And I, I was just sort of almost entranced by how beautiful his African accent was in, in English. And then the very next group got up, and one of my students is British. And then after that, I had a student who was from Ireland. And all these different accents. And then, of course, my goodness, I've got... 30 students in the class who have different kinds of Southern or Northeastern or Midwestern accents. But the point is like, there was never a moment where they thought, all right, I've hit the age of accountability. As we traditionally evangelicals might say, do I accept the accent by which I have been living or will I reject it? Like, it's not a choice. You find yourself already speaking that way because the language was learned and processed and then your body was actually shaped. Your vocal cords adjusted relative to how it is you heard others saying syllables, right? Why would we expect something different when it comes to how we read the Bible together? And then the obviousness with which we assume our way is the only way, the only thing we could do, right? There are better and worse interpretations, but notice the better and worse um, have to be articulated within some shared commitment to the standard and criterion by which you're even judging that value. And, and I think that we somehow live in a space where we tend to act like, uh, and, and Christian nationalism sadly does say this stuff, Oh, well, if your accent sounds, you know, Hispanic, or if it sounds like you're from this part of the world, or God forbid it, you know, gives away maybe an ethnicity that would be associated with a different religious tradition or whatever, we tend to think, oh, danger, problem, wrong, (laughs) right? But notice that's actually a hermeneutic rejection that plays out as a social exclusion. But my goodness, how naive could we be to think that I speak without an accent, <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense to anyone from anywhere else because I'm the one who has the accent. So being aware of the fact that 
I will always perceive my way of making sense of things as just obviously the case. That's the level at which I think the what you're calling simplistic readings of scripture show up. Yes, because I think it's rooted in communities of practice that have actually made it difficult to see our practices as already communitarian, right? They're already invested in the very thing about which we speak. And that tension is one that I think is hard to get people to see, but it turns out it's a really, really basic awareness. We, my goodness, you know, when you get on the road, there's a red octagon up a foot. We slow down because that's what we do with stop signs. But the contingency of that is staggering, right? We could have had blue diamonds mean slow down. But somehow, if you go to a different country, a different space or whatever, maybe they do have blue diamonds. Like, the fact that we assume that's just what this means, you're like, no, that's what we've allowed it to mean internal to this history with this context, and that doesn't make it now not mean that. And that's, I think, the trick for traditional evangelicals. If you recognize the contingency, therefore they think you've said it's false, right? And that doesn't follow, <laughs> If I run the stop sign and the cop pulls me over and I'm like, listen here, policeman, don't you understand the contingency of the hermeneutic awareness of that shape and that color? Have you read your Wittgenstein? Don't you realize that red and like, that's not going to get you out of the ticket. He's like, yeah, okay. But you ran the stop sign, 50 bucks, man. Like it's still the case. Race can be a radically contingent circumstance of our social lives and our power relations doesn't mean that racism's not real, <laughs> right? So contingency doesn't mean no truth. And I think so often that's where we tend to find ourselves when we're talking about religious epistemology in broader contexts. Philosophers tend to be pretty good at working through some of this, but really bad at inviting non-philosophers to work through it with us. What I loved about his work, and again, disagree with tons of it, but I loved how honest he was <laughs> about the fact that we philosophers are just doing one more version of what humans could do with their time. It's not any better or any worse than being a bike mechanic or being a professional snow skier or being a physician, right? His point is all these things are aspects of the life that we find ourselves living and they're all interesting and they're productive unless they're not, right? Again, you want to go be a, a heroin dealer? Well, there's reasons why we as a society say, no, no, <laughs> that's not a thing we're going to say okay to, right? But there is, I think, such pretentiousness in uh, philosophical ways of making sense of our own discourse, our own speech, our own ideas. And one of the things that I have really had to learn um, in doing my YouTube channel, Philosophy Where We Find Ourselves, is for every one or two people that are saying, wow, thank you so much. I loved this account of Levinas's theory of whatever. I'm going to get another comment that says, uh, what a bunch of nonsense. This is why no one takes philosophy seriously, <laughs> right? So even in the attempt to make it radically accessible and available and lowbrow and not use the technical jargon, it's still asking a lot 
of people who often are working two and three jobs to put food on the table, navigating a world where house ownership has become almost impossible unless you are exceptionally wealthy, a, a world where eggs went from 50 cents to over $6 in just a matter of years, like, you know, a, a world where, I mean, my goodness, like, you know, Ukrainians are continuing to fight against tyranny and evil and doing this in a mode that most of us in America, at least, again, we couldn't just put a freaking mask on, much less somehow rallying together while bombs are dropping, right? I mean, it's mind-blowing. So given the hardships of the realities of how we have allowed human existence to look, I think it's understandable that a lot of people would simply hear me or you talk about this stuff and say, you know what? Like, I'm out. This is great. Y'all talk about it, but I don't have time to do this kind of thinking. I've got to figure out how to make tomorrow not suck. I've got to make sure that tomorrow my kids are able to get to school and have shoes on, right? And I think that that's where philosophers sometimes miss. We think we're trying to say yes, but don't you see that's what we're concerned about. We're concerned about the justice. We're trying to stand with you. But we do it being so patronizing to the way in which they live. Uh, and, and, and I think that's a real mistake. I, I think that um, philosophers have got to start modeling what it looks like, not just to think well, but to invite others to think with. And, and that is a different task, and it's an important one. Well, I mean, think about it. Uh, Socrates effectively does this, right? He just walks around and says, hey, huh, I, I hear you saying that Q... Really? Q? I hear you saying that P. Why do you think P? Like, what he does is basically walks around and says, hey, let's talk together. Let's think about some stuff. And I, I, I don't think philosophers tend to do that anymore. What they tend to do, whether continental, analytic, pragmatic, feminist, whatever the tradition in which they work, we tend to think because society doesn't recognize how valuable we are, <laughs> right? That makes us mad. And so what we'll do, we'll just go enclave ourselves at a fancy hotel for like four days in San Antonio or whatever and think really, really well with each other and think the world is made better because we did this. And look, I'm all for experts being good at their expertise with other experts. Like I want immunologists not to call me when they're making a vaccine. I want them to like talk to other immunologists, right? So it's important that we allow expertise to matter. But I do think that uh, the humanities in general has not been very good at following this kind of Socratic invitational model. My goodness, we see the same thing in a kind of Confucian model, right? Where, you know, walking and inviting people to come talk. And of course, he presents himself, you know, a little bit more master status than we see in Socrates, um, more Aristotelian person of practical wisdom. Uh, but at the same time, we also see him just having conversations with lots of people, right? And I think increasingly the humanities would be better off um, if we stopped trying to argue for our relevance and we just went out and were that good at being relevant. Right. And I don't think that being good at being relevant means that you acquiesce to the value theories in play in society and that you sell out to the capitalist model of worth and 
the reason you go to college is just to get a job. And like, no, I, I actually think what we should do is be participants in public discourse in ways that refuse to allow the extremists, the conspiracy theorists, the um, antagonists to carry the day. And all the data on group polarization shows that if you have a group of like-minded people, there will be a range of views on offer among that community, right? So let's say all of us get together, <coughs> um, you know, we're, we're all car aficionados. And some of us think electric cars are the future. Or some of us think, no, we've got to go back to naturally aspirated V8s, right? There's, there's, some people think motorcycles are, in fact, really better than cars. Other people say, no, 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 we need off-road vehicles. That's where the future. There's a, a range, but they're all connected by some affinity, some shared commitment, which is why the we makes sense. Well, what if you start saying, we're not letting those motorcycle people here? They're not even car people. They're just posers. <laughs> Kick them out. We're, we're not going to allow those truck folk. Like suddenly you're narrowing the community of affinity. And it turns out that the community will move always toward the most extreme view of the people within it. If there are not a range of views on offer. So the more we narrow the perspective, the more extreme the perspective will become and the more dangerous and risky the behavior of now that extreme group because they now are genuinely terrified of the other. And so back to, you know, why did evangelicals stop caring about the other? Well, I actually think lots of it's rooted in just the social psychology of how group polarization works. When you've got a bunch of, let's say, you know, self-identifying progressives who will not let a conservative be in that room, and you've got a bunch of conservatives who say, don't let the progressive in there ruining the country. Now the conservatives and the progressives will become more radicalized internal to their community. And then the moderate progressives will be seen as the posers who've got to be kicked out. The more moderate conservative will be seen as rhinos and kick them out. And so you end up with a increasingly reckless set of options. <laughs> and the problem is we all want to fit somewhere, right? This is natural human psychology. And the only options are all now extreme dangerous options because they force us then to reject not just as wrong, but as enemy, those with whom we disagree. And so that's where I think philosophers, sadly, have, and again, humanities in general, have given f uh, fuel to that fire by being so angry and so furious and so dismissive of those with whom they disagree socially, instead of saying, hey, we've got to find a way somehow to be in this space and think together, even though part of what that looks like is me really believing you are wrong about this. Right. And that's the thing we just can't handle. We want to be surrounded by people who think we're right all the time. <laughs> and, and that's not a healthy spot for philosophers, my goodness, but it's a even more unhealthy spot for a country, for a globe, for a, a human society. Well, I'm very glad, Aaron, that you are there in that space, even if certain other people can't be in that space. And it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I hope you'll be back again. 
Well, Bruce, my honor. Uh, I love you, man. And thanks for what you're doing. I think it's important and you're making the world better.